Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Girls on Board podcast, a podcast featuring influential women and men on the sometimes complex challenges faced by women on the path to senior leadership and gender equality in the boardroom. By sharing their stories, we hope to inspire, guide, and empower the next generation of board-ready women. For our very first episode of the podcast, we're talking to Andrew Tupper. Dr. Andrew Tupper is the principal of Natural Hazards Consulting, an Australian-based consultancy that focuses on early warning systems for natural hazards. Previously, Andrew worked in a number of senior positions in the Australian Bureau of Meteorology, including as a Victorian State Manager, Centre Director for the National Operations Centre, and Regional Director for the Northern Territory. In those roles, Andrew managed many severe weather events and operations, including tropical cyclones, bushfires, floods, severe storms, and the aviation impact of volcanic eruptions. He has served on many local and international committees relating to his expertise, and was also the inaugural chair of the Environment Protection Authority in the Northern Territory during his time there. We're very excited for you to hear about Andrew's perspective on how organizations can better incorporate gender perspectives at the senior level and his opinions on the importance of diversity in decision-making. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Andrew Tupper. Andrew, thank you for agreeing to come onto this podcast today with Ellie and I. Um, we're going to start with a little bit of an introduction. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, and what you're currently working on in your field? Hi, Christine and Ellie. Thanks for having me. It's, it's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, okay, um, so a bit about me. Um, so I'm an Australian. Um, I trained as a meteorologist uh, originally at uni, and then I joined the um, Bureau of Meteorology in Australia, which is the National Weather Service. Um, and I did more training, basically, then went up to Darwin in far northern Australia as a forecaster. And I spent about 10 years on shift work, um, forecasting, weather right. for aviation, uh, for the public, um, doing cyclones and storms and so on. And mm -hmm. then I got into um, uh, some an obscure field at the time called for volcanic ash clouds. Um, so we were getting really into the problem of volcanoes erupting and posing threats to aviation. So um, I actually got some time off to do a, a PhD in that topic and sort of learned whole lot about them and did much more operations and management after that um, and then ended up in Melbourne in southern Australia um, as the, the head of the National Operations Centre and, and then the, uh, the state manager for the, the state of Victoria in southeastern Australia. But now um, I work independently as a consultant and um, I have been working for a number of organisations around the world um, in the field basically of natural hazards and how to improve early warning systems, um, and it's a great deal of fun. That's amazing. I actually just out of because I my the industry that I work in is very far removed from what you do in your industry. But I'm curious about kind of like just generally want to know what is the most exciting thing about your your job, and what what makes you want to work and are passionate about what you do. It's mm, a great question. I, I think. I, it's probably the same answer for a lot of industries, um, and I think um, you're in fashion. And I think it's it's probably similar mm -hmm. there. It's just the joy of endless 
discovery and creativity of um, finding new frontiers and working how to how to do good things um, in those areas mm-hmm. um, and create a good result. That's what's always kept me going. I've always enjoyed every every job I've done, you know, even though not all days are enjoyable. You know, at, <laughs> yeah, the, at the end of a hard week, you can look back and go, mm. well, that was pretty awesome. Learn something new, solve some problems. Um, and in physical sciences, you know, there's so much that we don't know. Um, and there's also mm-hmm. so much that we can deal with and make a difference in people's lives. So that's always what's kept me going. That's amazing. Thank you, Andrew, for giving me more insight. Um, I, I mean, let's just get, get into it. Moving into one of the main themes you want to focus today in the episode is climate change and crisis management. Um, Ellie, if you want to go ahead and ask our guests the first question. Definitely. Um, so, Andrew, obviously, of course, you have a lot of experience in both these areas, being with the Bureau of Meteorology and also your work um, with the volcanoes. So we wanted to ask, like, in the workplace, from what we understand, women's leadership is, you know, really associated with increased transparency around climate impacts, especially in the boardroom. Um, In fact, in a study by UN Women, it was found that a high percentage of women on corporate boards positively correlates with effective and collective action against climate change and running climate Um, positive initiatives within the workplace with this kind of context in mind do you think men and women approach this issue of climate change or really making a difference differently have you had much um, experience in the workplace seeing these two roles play out yeah look I definitely think there there is a difference I mean Look, of course, we're talking about, you know, on average and then, you know, we're talking about stereotypes and, and so on, but mm. but it's useful to be able to do that. Um, and, yeah, I think that for climate change and also natural hazards, um, there are some very similar themes that come through and that are consistent with what we see in sort of boards and decision-making bodies more generally. Um, mm. So if we're talking about, about my area, um, weather and, and climate, the way that we we predict weather and climate is we work cooperatively to exchange information, uh, to share different insights from around the world, to make mm. predictions using that shared data, and then to, to try and make decisions that are good for the collective, good for the whole. So it's a global co- mm-hmm. cooperative effort at every stage. Mm. And you know, that's how weather forecasting actually works. You can't make a weather forecast without sharing information together. Um, otherwise, you're just yeah. trying to do your own special patch without knowing any intelligence from anyone else. Um, and, and climate is exactly the same. You, to understand global climate, you've got to have information from everywhere, including countries that you may be at, at war with. Um, and then the decisions that you're making are... Uh, to make decisions for the common good, you've got to sort of submerge your ego a little bit and think about <laughs> what benefits the most most people. Um, and thinking about mm-hmm. sort of male and female traits in that process, um, I think women are much more saluted, are, are suited to collective decision-making in the greater good. Um, I think there's an element of masculine behaviour which is still very competitive, which... Um, 
which sees a problem as a zero-sum game problem where you know, I win, you lose, um, mm. some much more than others, obviously. Um, mm -hmm. But climate and weather are never about I win, you lose. It's about how we can create something better together or how we can muck up the planet together, I suppose, all <laughs> by competing with each other. Um, mm -hmm. The environment suffers a lot more in wars than in peacetime. Um, and the, the collective outcome suffers a lot more uh, when people are just thinking for themselves. What speaks to mind or what sparks in my mind from, from that insight is just that it is a collective effort. And, you know, whether it be male or female and the different perspectives, melding them together is what's really important, I think, especially mm -hmm. in times of crisis. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I mean, that study you mentioned, um, mm. uh, that that's, that's important. Um, so boards um, have been shown to do better with climate policy when they have a greater high percentage of women. That's also true for leadership um, in the political sphere. Um, so uh, there was a study that showed that female representation in na national parliaments leads to more stringent climate change policies across countries. Um, mm. and therefore lower carbon dioxide emissions. Um, and th that study, um, they gave an example. If um, They talked about Bahrain just as a, as a random country where females are just over 2% of parliamentarians oh, wow. um, and compared it to Den Denmark, which has 37% female representation. So in their study, they postulated that if you lift Bahrain's representation of women in parliament to the same as Denmark, you would get a six-fold increase in how effective the country's climate change policies would be. Um, wow. Now, that, that's a pretty powerful really study, and, and you'll, you'll see it quoted around a lot, but it's it a really highlights. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So that, you know, that's about practical difference that it makes to have a female leadership as part of the mix. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. I, I didn't realise there was... I guess it's because I never looked into it but didn't know about the disparity between having women leading in this space how how effective it would be the difference so that's really interesting to hear that just when you were speaking it reminded me of when i worked at this nonprofit called cfda and i worked in the sustainability sector for a long time and i did realize that there was a little bit of a disparity in you know mostly women working in that sector than men so that's what that reminded me of. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. Um, and I don't know, you might want to comment on this, but I think if we looked at some of the poor governments, let's not try and name names, um, but, you know, examples of poor governance that we've seen, I'd say that quite often there's an element of toxic masculinity in there, mm. um, which aligns mm -hmm. to that sort of anti-environment, let's burn petrol, gas. Um, or, you know, let's behave in that really selfish way. Um, would would yeah. you agree that's the case? I, I agree. I definitely see what, what you're saying about uh, the, feel, uh, the female and male difference in the kind of mindset there is, mm. um, especially when it comes to something like social impact and climate change and for the greater good in the overall environment. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious if perhaps some or perhaps a reason for the difference is I feel that women are generally perhaps we're going to stereotype here but generally um the caregivers or or community 
um, caregivers and they're mm -hmm. in a way when a crisis happens or when there is an area of tension it's often them that are most I feel like they are most impacted in a way or that the community yeah. they really help out they really step forward yeah I, th I think that's right um, so in any um, in any disaster the sort of iron rule is that the most vulnerable people suffer um, yeah. and you know that's it's a horrible thing to say um, but it's it's reality so um, if people behave selfishly then the vulnerable people suffer more if, if people behave as a collective then um, the community is more resilient um, and mm -hmm. traditionally women make a lot of that difference about whether a community is resilient or not you know depending on the level yeah. of social organizing and empowerment that the women have to to change outcomes um and the worse the disaster is you know the the more the, the vulnerable at, at risk so of course you want the whole community and particularly women um and minority groups to be empowered to to make a difference it it, it changes the outcome um mm. I think there's a, an element of chemistry as well, um, mm. just in the way that um, even just families can can work together. Um, I, I mean, I think I think that the ideal community is is where everyone's working together really well and bringing their own perspectives to a, a problem and challenging each other. You know, just like a, a good boardroom. Um, I don't know if you remember um, early last year there was a massive eruption in Tonga um, and there were some amazing stories that, that came out of that. Um, so um, here's one that I, I really love. I'm just going to read out. This is from a Facebook um, group that was relating stories about, uh, I think it's called Ordinary Tongan, Tongan Lives. Um, okay. so There's a quote, mm -hmm. quote from a woman. I've never left our home during cyclones, we're always here. But when I heard the first blast from the eruption, I was scared. I told my husband we should leave. He said to stay. So I said, well, you stay here, I'm leaving. <laughs> so I packed some crackers and water and rushed to my daughter's van outside. To my surprise, the van was packed with our extended family. There were 20 of us inside, 10 kids, 10 adults. Even my husband made it to the van too. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and I, I love that as a story um, um it doesn't have to be male female but that's about the yeah. dynamic of people actually saying yeah come on get real yeah. um and and you know the man asserted his authority she just instantly challenged it and said no <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. We're leaving. and Andrew I think that that goes really well into our next question about well, do you think that these same principles apply in emergency management as they do for climate change? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, in emergency management, um, you can have slow developing emergencies and climate change is a slow developing emergency. Um, mm -hmm. And part of the reason it's really challenging is that it's developed over decades um, and will take decades more, centuries more even to, to play out. Um, but some hazards are like that too. Um, I'll talk about natural hazards. Uh, I, I know less about war, thank goodness. But um, if you think about uh, an earthquake, you can't do much during an earthquake um, that's sort of in that heroic response mode. You no. can, you know, gather people safely, mm -hmm. yeah. they hide under the hide in the doorway, whatever. But most of the work that is done to 
mitigate against an earthquake is done in building planning, in your mm. policies for development, in, in good governance about the strength of the community that you're building. And mm-hmm. um, and the recovery, again, there's a lot of digging through rubble, but there's, there's a lot of how do we care for the affected. Um, and it's those longer-term things, the, um, the well-governed b- building processes um, that encourage strong communities and then the social resilience of the communities that make the biggest difference other mm-hmm. than, the, you know, the earthquake itself. So you've got those really long-term um, processes at play. Um, and other things are the same. Um, bushfires are an example where you can go out and f- and fight a fire and you know, that's the kind of the big hero thing to do and and obviously nothing against those who do it's an amazing thing um but uh a lot of the difference in outcomes is going to be about well how well was the community prepared um mm. how well did they work together to um to create a safe space where they could be um how well were families looked after and so on and when you start to bring those things mm-hmm. into consideration the role of women um is, is so strong um, mm-hmm. and unless that's accounted for, unless you've got those voices just as strong as the sort of the more masculine voices, um, you know, might be more focused on fighting the fires, for example, um, yeah. then you're missing yeah. preparing for the emergency. Um, and I could go through every kind of hazard, but it's, uh, it's pretty much all like that. And unless you're taking in these, this social, the nurturing, community-building considerations, you're not really thinking through the hazard properly. Yeah, that it reminds me of the bushfire example, Andrew, because just recently in the newspaper I saw an article about a community, or I think it was a particular family, who was still recollecting their lives after the fact, after the crisis, I think that often goes a little bit, um, I guess, out of sight, out of mind in what happens afterwards and how is the community mm-hmm. rallying, rallying together afterwards and what plans and actions are put in place, you know, to help with, you know, the cleanup effort in a sense. Yeah, absolutely right, Ellie. And I think, um, yeah, the 2019-2020 fires in Australia were was mm. so awful. Um, and mm-hmm. then we immediately moved into like three summers of flood. Um, yes. But <laughs> um, but people, Crazy. Uh, community, communities are still recovering from those fires. Uh, and yeah, again, it's it's the strength and resilience of those communities um, and the mm. the actions of people in the communities that are making the difference. Thank you so much, Andrew, for those anecdotes as well from both you and Ellie. Because yeah. I mean, for me. <laughs> I, I, I'm in New York. I was born and raised here. I'm obviously seeing a lot of these things through um, the news and online and social media, but I'm obviously not experiencing those things firsthand or even being like near those things. So being able to hear these stories and how women's voices and leadership can make an impact is really important to me. So thank you for that. I was just going to say, I mean, New York has obviously dealt with its its, its own tragedies, uh, but um, yes. uh, a, a couple of couple that came to mind for me: um, Hurricane Sandy uh, a few years mm-hmm. ago, mm. um, and of course nine um, eleven um, before that. Mm-hmm. Um, where you've, you've got these dreadful situations um, that that leave scarring impacts, um, 
and I I would imagine I you know I wasn't there for either of those occasions, but mm-hmm. I would imagine that the resilience of the community had an enormous impact on on the recovery yeah. from those disasters. That is an important moment. I think nine eleven each year where we just mm-hmm. like kind of look back on that. I mean, I was I was one years old when that happened, mm-hmm. um, but my dad was like my dad was close to the incident, so it it does hit very close to home. And obviously, I'm in the wow. city often, and we're close to downtown, so. Yeah, it's always in our minds and they were always thinking about it. Keeping all this in mind and everything that we discussed, um, how can organizations incorporate gender perspectives at a corporate level? And in that perspective, how can they involve women as agents of change in the boardroom? Okay, all right. So these are very big topics. Um, <laughs> yes, so, it is. These are all very heavy <laughs> topics. <laughs> um, okay, so from my perspective and um you know obviously i've had my own experiences and i haven't i haven't been terribly corporate in my career but um i think there are a couple of universal principles about gender diversity um and 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 why we need to do we've been talking about a little bit but just just to restate Mm -hmm. um that we want more women on boards and any other decision making body for at least a couple of really strong reasons. Firstly, because if you improve the diversity of wisdom in the room, you mm. make better decisions. Um, and you need to to achieve that, you need not just you know, the token woman, the token ethnic minority. Um, mm-hmm. You need those people to be empowered to be themselves on the board, on the committee. Um listen to respectively and for for their knowledge to sort of to change the way that other people are thinking so that's that's that kind of special situation and studies show that when you have greater diversity on boards if you're a company you're making better decisions and you're making more money and you're reducing your risk of failure um Mm -hmm. and you know there are a lot, lot of studies around that it's hard data your company will do better if you have a better board um, and the other main reason, other than the principle of diversity in decision making, is that if you're making decisions on behalf of people, and I think this goes very much true to this sort of the community organisation or disaster things that I was talking about, um, mm-hmm. it's fair that those people be represented on the board. So that yeah. doesn't mean that someone stands up and saying, I'm representing all women, um, and this is what you should do. What it, what it means is that the women will be able to look at the board and say, yes, I can see the diversity of the board means that I'm in there. My interests are being represented in their discussions. This, again, same as a good government. Um, that, mm-hmm. um, decisions made on behalf of the people should, should be made by representatives of the people, not just a minority of the people. Okay, so um, off the soapbox. Um, <laughs> that was great. Uh, <laughs> great perspective, Andrew. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, I guess from my background, I've come from that uh, sort of physical sciences background where you do get a strong minority of, of women. Um, mm-hmm. in, in meteorology, the statistic is something like uh, only 23% of uh, professionals are women. Um, mm-hmm. uh, in in general, in some countries, it's even lower than that. Um, and 
getting more women into science, let alone into science leadership, has always mm. been a challenge. Um, so we certainly don't have the answers uh, in my field. Um, and I would also say, since we've been talking about emergency management a little bit, um, it's very clearly the same there. Um, I talked about firefighters before, and yeah, mm. you can see that there's a real struggle in most agencies involved with fire. Um, and police and other emergency services, it tends to be the same. So, so we're generally dealing with a lot of very masculine kind of organisations. They may not have corporate boards, but they've got the same challenges of leadership mm -hmm. and how to think a little bit differently. Um, so your question was about how to to improve that. Um, uh, I, I guess the first thing is that it's got to be on the table. You, you've actually got to have people believing that this is a problem. Um, and you mm -hmm. need to consider it explicitly. Mm. Um, there have been various projects run around the, the world in developing countries um, where it's been shown that explicit consideration of gender um, can make a difference in the kind of fields that I work in, can make a, a difference in the way that emergency management is structured or natural hazards are, are treated. Um, for climate more generally, um, there's a really good website of um, uh, the Climate Governance Initiative. It's a global initiative um, and mm -hmm. it supports boards of directors around the world. Um, oh, wow. What it does is um, it, uh, there's a, a set of principles for effective climate governance that was developed under the World Economic Forum. Um, and those principles, um, I won't go right through them, but they talk about climate accountability um, on the board, having enough command of the subject, structuring the board appropriately, mm. um, assessing your climate risks and climate impacts, um, having the right uh, integration of strategy, incentivising your leadership to prioritise climate change, just climate risk, just as you would um, prioritise mm. other risks. Um, having full um, disclosure, reporting to those that you're accountable for yeah. um, and making sure that there's full and frank exchange in the organisation. Those, those are the basic principles. Um, and the Climate Governance Initiative works with organisations around the world um, that themselves work with boards of directors to improve that. So that's like an explicit program that operates in many countries to improve the corporate oh, wow. management of climate risk, um, yeah. which I think is, is really good. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't aware that that organisation existed. <laughs> Perhaps should put, um, some, yeah, I'd like to put a link in the show notes to yeah. <laughs> the website. Yeah, look, it's, definitely, definitely it's worth having a look at, at the report that, that's on their website. Um, and then, yeah, people who want to get involved with their national organisations that promote good governance can absolutely follow that link and, you know, put up their hand to say, hey, how can I make a difference in my own context? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, I think it's important to, to say that there is a difference between sort of believing in gender diversity and challenging ourselves to do something about it. Um, yeah. You know, it takes a lot of guts to take the old boys out of the board <laughs> uh, to, to create space for women and uh, to create space for ethnic minorities as well. Um, it takes discipline to not make 
um, decisions in the bathroom where you just get to talk to your own gender and just say, no, let's leave that to the boardroom. Thank you. Wash your hands. Mm -hmm. Let's come back and and, and let's all talk about it together. Um, Definitely. You know, that that kind of um, human tendency that we, I think we all have to want to talk with people who are like, like us and to make comfortable decisions with people who don't challenge us very much and, you know, have very happy short meetings where we mm-hmm. all agree. Mm. Uh, we've got 100%. to fight that. Yeah. 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 I guess following on from that, you know, if you're thinking about, you know, how can directors, you know, and board members and organisations best structure themselves to, you know, manage their responsibility around, you know, climate change or diversity or crisis management, from your experience and what we've just discussed, it sounds like having fostering that culture of respect, but also fostering a culture that is collective and encourages people to be themselves and and challenge each other is really, I guess, from what I'm hearing and from what I understand, is really the way to structure in order to really make an impact. I know, would you, mm-hmm. Christina, Andrew, would you agree with this? Yeah, I, I would agree. Now, look, I, I'm really conscious of, of my own background. I'm a white mm. middle-aged male. I've had it really easy um, in a whole lot of things. Um, uh, and I'm very much early on a learning journey towards a whole lot of other things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it took me a long time to realise, I guess, some of the depth of my own biases um and i know that mm-hmm. i've got my own unconscious biases still um and and always will have so something that i might think is easy and straightforward um might look very different to um someone who uh has a different kind of background so mm. with all, with that really important caveat um yeah i think that we need to um intentionally make space to to create a respectful environment uh, in in this example where men don't talk over women um, mm. where uh, uncomfortable conversations can happen in a secure environment um, mm. where it's okay to challenge each other um, there are lots of corporate failures that have happened because everyone just agreed with each other and no one voiced the uncomfortable question yeah um, mm-hmm. and uh we can't afford for that to happen around the big issues we can't afford for it to happen in the corporate space you know some massive corporate failures have happened because of poor decision making uh we can even less afford to have it happen in the public space when we're talking about climate change um mm-hmm. you know we cannot allow poor short-term decisions to be made simply because we're unwilling to challenge the governance model that we work under. I think sometimes um, the last point that you made about us, especially not being able to, we can't look past that, especially in the industry that you work in that is making an an impact on the world in a really big way. Um, I sometimes, I guess sometimes it's interesting seeing it in that perspective because in the industry I work in, it, it's not that it's not important because obviously these messages of diversity and, and leadership, women leadership are important in my industry as well. But mm. it, it's it's just like the comparison sometimes between it. 
the fashion industry is like it's not the impact it's not as as big as something as like the industry that you work in and i would i'd almost argue that you know in terms of sustainability there is a massive i feel there is a massive movement in fashion at the moment and Mm -hmm. i feel it is Mm -hmm. really connected at least in australia at the moment a lot of brands are developing you know their own um, kind of climate change initiatives or fun fundraisers and events and i'm not yeah. sure what it's like in new york but at the moment here it feels like it is really a connected connected in a way yeah no i i think that's a great point you make ellie that's why a lot i'm drawing a lot of like similarities and um mm. to what andrew was saying and to what the both points that you guys are bringing up there are a lot of similarities in so many ways so it's nice that there's like a connection even though it seems very far disconnected with between like stem and something like the creative the arts and the creative um side of things well andrew that was amazing because you kind of answered our theme on diversity i mean all throughout our discussion we've been talking about the importance of diversity in decision making so thank you for touching upon that I think I want to move on to our next theme, which is skills needed for the boardroom, because something that's very important and a part of the reason why we started this initiative, Girls on Board, and this podcast is to create this element of storytelling and showcasing role models like yourself to inspire or a lot younger, but who want to be these powerful women in leadership positions and on boards. So um, the question that I want to ask you is just in general, if you can give a little insight on what do you think, like, how do you think a board governs, governs an organization? And what do you think an effective board looks like? You kind of discussed it a little bit, um, but if you can just analyze opinion on that. Thanks. Um, and, and let me emphasize again, I don't see myself as, as much of a role model in terms of diversity. Um, <laughs> who I am, where I come from, okay. Um, but um, I, I do see this as really important. Um, so, yeah. yeah, look, the function of a board is to take accountability for a company's activities um, mm-hmm. or if we're going to broaden out our board um, definition for an organization's activities um, and the board has to demonstrate accountability to the shareholders if it's a public company um, or those who are otherwise invested if it's another kind of organization um, so the board may focus on strategy but it's accountable for everything it's accountable for the bottom line of success or failure of Mm -hmm. the activities of the organization um so for that reason um the board has to function effectively often the the people who are in those roles haven't necessarily um been trained with any particular skills to do that they've just kind of fallen into it and then you know maybe invited their mates on whatever so you often would oh, see that's, boards okay that's really Sorry, interesting well that's an interesting I mean, point yeah think 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 about a, a small company that grows into a large company um and the chaotic process under which that happens um you know you generally it, it might be a very successful it might be someone who um, started at age 23 and you were brilliant and you had a, some tech innovation that revolutionized the world through, a, I don't know, a social media network, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, no one in that period stopped to say, hey, do you know, you should take a few weeks out to learn about corporate governance. Um, 
Mm. Uh, and there are particular disciplines yeah. <laughs> in that. And so you might find yourself making all kinds of decisions um, that you may not have made had you had a really sort of mature understanding of organisational processes. Um, even, mm. you know, in uh, again, let's not go into names, but in, in contemporary society, you see some really interesting billionaire behaviour um, yes. where you might question um, the maturity of the people involved um, and their understanding of how corporate processes might really work successfully. Um, so to me, an effective board consists of people who do have training and maturity to make good decisions together, who are honest and trusting of each other um, and who genuinely have the interests of accountability and accountability to their shareholders, to their community, uh, and of course, to uh, regulatory agencies in mind. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. Those those magic agreements, if you can get them <laughs> together, that's, that's what's going to help the company be successful. Yes, thank you. They are certainly magic ingredients in a way. I find it funny, Andrew, how you mentioned how, you know, not everyone says, oh, let's take some time out to learn about governments. Um, but mm. I feel like in your career and with um, the Bureau of Immunology, you had that experience where, you know, you were, I guess, asked to take a, um, a company director's course with the Australian Institute of Company Directors. Um, so how was that experience for you, I guess? I guess what was your top takeaways or skills that you learned from that course? Yeah, thanks, thanks, Ellie. Um, that was actually really interesting. So um, the mm -hmm. way that happened, and this is just, you know, my, my personal journey there was I was mm -hmm. actually asked by the Northern Territory Government to um, be the chair of the, the inaugural chair of the Environment Protection Authority, mm -hmm. um, which they were setting up at the time. Um, and uh, the Bureau graciously granted me permission to do that you know, knowing that it was going to take some of my time. Um, and so it was actually the Northern Territory government that said, okay, so we want to make sure that everyone um, on the board of the EPA has appropriate governance qualifications. And so they sent oh. me on the company director's course. Um, and then some years later, the, the Bureau paid for me to have a refresher on it just to keep my skills sharp. Um, mm -hmm. So that, that was a revelation. Firstly, um, that... Uh, a regional government in Australia, the Northern Territory is, has a very large surface area but a small population of about 200,000 people. Um, mm. and, and they were prepared to say, hey, governance is important and um, so this is going to be a requirement of, of being on the EPA board. And again, as chair, of course, that was particularly important. Um, really strong lesson there in how a good government might work. But then also, you know, that was further supported by the organisation. Um, so what was the experience like? Um, to me, it was a revelation. Now, at the time, mm. I was in a senior management position um, in the Bureau of Meteorology. I was a regional director. Um, and um, coming from a science background, I had not been exposed to a whole lot of corporate concepts. And mm. had I not been challenged to take the time out to do a course um, and to 
um, do a particularly nasty assignment and sit a particularly hard exam, um, <laughs> you know, I wouldn't have learned about a whole lot of things. So in that course, mm-hmm. just like in any other good corporate government governance courses, um, we spent a lot of time going through case studies um, of success and failure, mostly failure in, in corporate decision-making, uh, how boards should be structured, um, diversity principles. The Australian Institute of Company Directors is really strong on um, pushing diversity principles mm. um, and good process in general. Um, and the other participants on the course were the same. Uh, I mean, in terms of they all came from very different backgrounds, but in each case it was there's a priority here, which means setting aside the time and, and the money to do that course and to take those governance skills back to the organisation. Um, so it was a it was a mind blowing experience for me coming from that science background and kind of mm-hmm. falling into management without um, having considered those things. Oh, sorry, I just have a follow up question to that. So no, so having taken that course, um, would you say that would you recommend for I guess organizations or companies to provide a course like that to people like yourselves who are trying to be in those positions? Yeah, I, I definitely. I I think that anyone in a position of governance should take the time to learn governance skills, and that includes mm-hmm. um, our elected representatives, who often mm-hmm. find themselves with extraordinary power and not much formal background or understanding to exercise that power. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, corporations and community organisations just as important. Um, Generally, you're peeping, you're dealing with people's lives or money in some way, and you're mm. trying to make a positive difference to the world. Um, and for that, you need the best skill set that you can. Yeah, actually, reminds me of um, the time when I was uh, held a position in the student union um, at RMIT University. We actually did have a day at the very start of our term where we spent. Um, yeah, a full day essentially learning about governments, governments and how to be respectful wow. in meetings as well and everything from, you know, taking minutes to how the structure and decisions are made and the voting process. And for me, this was this was a while ago. This was a freshman at university. So for me, I did not know much about governance at all. It really was a, a mind-blowing experience and just hearing and hearing about your experience and the question you asked, Christina, that just came to my mind. And mm-hmm. I realised how, how important that was actually in in doing my role properly. I, yeah. And I think student organisations are probably a, a great example of where, where improved <laughs> skills are. would really help. <laughs> yes. Yes, they are. I was, I was just curious. Have you, in your time, I guess, have you come across any other... Is resources, organisations that you can share with us just for perhaps our audience members who are looking to upskill themselves. You know, they may not necessarily be able to do, you know, a course with Australian Institute um, mm-hmm. or within their university. But, yeah, it was just both of you, I guess, have you ever come across any resources online? I There are lots of resources online. Um I've, I've mentioned the, the climate one, um, mm-hmm. but also as a general principle, um, 
it's surprising how much assistance there can be out there for um, courses or community grants, um, mm. particularly in the mm -hmm. community sector. In the corporate sector, it's reasonable, I think, to expect um, that companies should actually invest in their people. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but in the community sector, that can be a little bit harder. But um, you often find that either courses are being offered or there are, are grants available. And if they're there, I really urge people to, to go and do it. It's a really good use of time. And it mm -hmm. enables you to immediately come back and apply what you've been learning. Um, and I'm pretty sure um, that this is universally true. Even in developing countries, um, there are usually organisations who are looking to develop governance skills. That is a great point too, because um, our audience, as we've established for our initiative and this podcast is at the university level. So around um, young women around the ages of 18 to 24. And I think setting that precedent, the advice that you've given on what resources they can find that are like within their reach, doing finding these grants um, is definitely something. There are like hundreds of thousands of grants out there from every level, every industry, anything that you could think of that are accessible to anyone that they could apply for. So I think that's a great piece of advice, Andrew. Thank you. Yeah, let, really let me let me um, uh, take a liberty in, in giving some further advice. If I'm, we know mm -hmm. that there are a lot of we know that there are a lot of corporate policies that are written to help people feel good, um, mm -hmm. uh, and that are, are hard to to put in, into practice. Um, so, if if applying for a grant um, or the time off to do the course, it's probably a really good idea. Um, to have that policy in hand because this policy here says that we are prioritising diversity and we want more women on the board and that means that you need to give me time off or support my application for this grant and show that you're serious wow. about it. Because sometimes we're uh -huh. just going to have those tough conversations and, and me as a, as a former manager, um, you know, if someone came and had that kind of conversation with me, it would be much more likely to be successful and I would hope that that's the case, you know when we're reminded of what we're meant to be supporting, that we go, oh, yeah, okay, that's all right. I'll cover you for tomorrow or next week or whatever. Yeah. I generally find as well people people are a lot more generous than you think. Like sometimes you just need to ask the question. Yeah. I mean, that was like a little wake-up call because for me, especially for me sometimes too, I mean, sometimes I'm afraid to ask those questions or um but what what you're saying, yeah, you're like, if you support me in this way, I can be a better, I can be a better worker, I can be a better employee, I can be better in this way. So of course mm. that they're going to see the the good in that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so Andrew, I want to, I guess, switching gears a little bit, I want to talk a little bit more about um, your experiences in, you know, because as you've worked as a company director at, you know, with the Northern Territory, Gov Northern Territory government, um, but also at a community level. So I know currently you're running um, just a community initiative or community group. Um, so I just want, I guess, to ask for you to talk us through those experiences and, you know, have you found any differences between these two levels at, you know, the high level government on the, and then the lower, perhaps lower, but just as important community level in terms of being a director on a board or participating in change? 
I it's an interesting question, Ali. Um, I think the the first thing is that often the difference between high level and low level are uh, illusions. Um, in that you know there's there's a bit of us that goes, oh wow, awesome chairman of a of a huge company, massive salary, whatever, mm-hmm. and find mm-hmm. that the uh, the skills of that person might be less than the leader of a community soup kitchen. Um, you know, they, mm-hmm. so I, I think it's, I, you know, in general, it, we're all coming from the same perspective but in different contexts and we all have things to teach each other. Um, certainly in community organisations, you would tend to find that women are more present and empowered um, in community leadership. And then perhaps, and you might challenge this, but perhaps a kind of thrust out of the spotlight when we get to the kind of more corporate world of maybe women are sort of taught to not, to not consider themselves as equal in that world as much when they've got all the skills. I'm, again, I'm, I don't know if I have the right to say that. Um, but I think at community level, we could simply empower ourselves more mm. um, to understand that our skills are equal to boardroom skills, if that makes mm. sense. I, I think that at, at all levels, again, I haven't been much in the corporate world at all, but um, at government and at community levels, the thing of listening to each other um, is critically important. It does disempower women a lot of the time because men and women tend to communicate a little bit differently, again, on average, and we're talking stereotypes and, and so on, but to tease out mm-hmm. issues in a, in a different way, um, to use the power plays a little bit differently. Um, if I can mention cross-cultural context as well, I think mm. um, there are also some important things to bear in mind. Um, so I've, I've been in a lot of international meetings um, where you see different modes of communication really playing out and bringing others in into grief um, so where for example the Australians and Americans in the room might be very assertive um, uh, and um, uh, assertive almost arrogant in in the way that we approach things and yep, you might have someone right. from yep yep uh, might have Asian cultures in the room um, mm-hmm. where their tendency would be to sit back, listen, be less confident in speaking partly because of language issues um, but mm-hmm. then also because their idea of respectful behaviour, depending on the culture, because certainly not mm-hmm. uh, all cultures are the same, it might be that we'll listen and then we'll let you know our decision. Um, and yeah. in that kind of context... I've seen us Westerners completely run up against the rocks um, and completely <laughs> fail to get an initiative through um, mm. because we did the basic respect to understand where our colleagues were coming from from other countries, mm. um, and you know, and similar things play out around the world, of course. Um, so that, that's another example of where diversity is important in any kind of community effort as well as as global effort. Yeah, I think cultural, that cultural awareness, I guess you could say, is another skill 
that organizations should really look to have within within their culture, within their workplace. Yeah. And most of what we've been talking about applies very much to that as well, um, to the, you know, having cultural diversity is very important as well mm. um, because men and women from a particular monoculture can just be really irritating men and women from a particular monoculture. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so, you know, there's always reasons why we need to be humble in that kind of context of uh, learning to listen to others. Oh, no. Thank you, Andrew, for that insight. I think, um, yeah, I've, I mean, we have one more question for you, which I think is like a great way to wrap up our conversation. Um, speaking more generally, now we're like kind of looking at this at a general level, what challenges do you believe womanly, women currently face in the boardroom? And how can organizations, in your opinion, better support women to either eliminate or help overcome some of these challenges? Uh, so again, that caveat. Um, so I'm, I can only talk from my sort of mm-hmm. dim understanding of what I've observed and maybe what right. failures I've observed in myself. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that the, what I was talking about before, the failure to listen uh, mm. is, is really important. We need to learn to listen as a, as a man. We need to learn to listen to women. Uh, it seems mm-hmm. pretty basic, but... Um, we don't always communicate very well. Um, we may, uh, coming from the science area, we may expect women to succeed by imitating male behaviour, and that's awful when it happens. I mean, it's, I mean, it's completely understandable, but uh, it's awful if we expect it. Um, yeah. Because if we want someone to, you know, come and down and have have a beer with the boys, and you know, sort of behaving those same powerful masculine kind of ways that we associate with the masculinity then um we're missing out on all the insights that she she could be bringing us um yeah. mm-hmm. so we need to as men we need to adjust ourselves um and and the way that, that we think about how we should be interacting mm. um i believe to that I think, point go on oh sorry andrew i was just going to say um you know, you were saying as men, but I think also as women, it works both ways. I feel like we talked mm-hmm. about earlier how um, really need to work collectively. So I, I think right. it's, I think it works both ways in everything that we say. Yeah, sure. That's a fair point, Ellie. Um, and there are also kind of some underlying things. So work-life balance um, mm. is often more of a challenge for women, um, you know, mm. that uh, the, the difficulty of trying to manage everything um, does get in the way of corporate governance. I'm sorry, getting in the way is a terrible phrase, but, you know, <laughs> it's, it's just a lot harder for women, um, particularly if women uh-huh. need to take more time off and are um, mm-hmm. Trying to fulfil expectations of being nurturers, um, and the men are getting a free ride because not not having to meet those expectations. Um, mm-hmm. So the, the whole career pathway thing is an impediment to us achieving good diversity on board. So any work that we do to improve career pathways for women um, should help in the boardroom as well. Um, one of the little areas where that tends to play out, I think, is the international thing where. Mm. Um, I, th- I think 
many women find it hard to travel if they um, are seen to have more responsibilities at home uh, and therefore mm-hmm. they don't get the experiences that the men do. So um, right across those, those corporate areas and just sort of life experience areas, it's really important that we empower uh, women and girls to have the same experiences and um, be able to bring it to the boardroom. Thank you, Andrew. And that's exactly what we as an initiative are trying to do, Ellie, along with the rest of our group members. Um, So, I mean, I couldn't have thought, yeah, I mean, it was honored to have you as a guest on our first episode on this podcast. And I hope that all of um, the listeners who listen to this episode really gain a lot from it, not just from your experience, but like the conversation that the three of us had together. Um, So, yeah, thank you, Andrew, for coming on this podcast. Oh, hey, thank you. Look, it's, it's been a pleasure. I hope there's been something useful in all of that. And I think it's great that you're running the podcast. Um, mm-hmm. And in in both of your works, you're, you're going to be doing really interesting and useful things um, and you know, making a difference to the world. Um, so that's really important. And, um, yeah, thank you for your time.